listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high-quality beans, and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store, and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code, JDP10. That's jdp one zero. And you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking. And they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, show your support to Baron Fig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today in the show, we have Marco Papik. Marco is a partner and chief strategist at Clocktar Group, an alternative investment asset management firm based in Santa Monica, California. He leads the firm's strategy team, providing bespoke research to clients and partners on geopolitics, macroeconomics, and markets. He began his career as a senior analyst at Stratfor, a global intelligence agency, and later founded the BCA Research Geopolitical Strategy Practice. He holds an MA in political science from the University of Texas at Austin, and an MA from the University of British Columbia. Join my conversation with Marco Papik. Marco, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. I'm excited. It's great to have you here. So the first thing we like to start out with guests is helping to frame the conversation. Let's go back to 2008 and global financial crisis. Uh, up until then, we saw quite a bit happen in the way of crises, long-term capital management coinciding with Russian crisis in 98. Uh, SNL crisis going, going back even further. Um, obviously the dot com bust, a bubble and bust. So a lot of things along the way, but let's talk about 2008 and help frame the conversation. Yeah, super. Um, well, I mean, in 2008, I was not in finance. 
I was uh, working for a political risk consultancy firm called Stratfor. It was actually interesting. I was doing two things. I was doing my PhD in political science at the University of Texas, and I had this full-time job. Um, and for me, 2008 really stood out because on August 8, 2008, the opening day of the Beijing Olympics, uh, Russia invades Georgia. You know, like Russian tanks uh, come down uh, over the border. And to me, that was the most critical moment of 2008 because of where I was working and of my framework, which was, you know, really stuck kind of in politics. I thought geopolitics is really important. And then September, you know, you, you get Lima Brothers and all sorts of things come out of uh, 2008. And for the most part, um, I didn't really understand what was going on. I mean, I remember East Asia crisis, um, but mainly from school, from taking, you know, graduate courses in like international political economy. But for me, really, I was still stuck in politics. And it wasn't until um, about 2000 and late, like late 2009, early 2010, early 2010, you know, the foreign currency mortgage um, issuance in Central and Eastern Europe, which was part of my purview at Stratfor. I was the Europe guy. Um, that started to blow up. And very quickly, I had to kind of read up on why this is so important and what does this mean? And from a political perspective, what it meant was that Europe had to kind of start thinking about bailing out member states. Uh, these ones were not Euro area member states, but they were nonetheless uh, important politically. And so you saw this uh, wave of IMF and EU bailouts of countries like Romania uh, because of their enormous uh, holding of these foreign currency mortgages. So it was a crash course in finance, and it really sort of prepared me for uh, what came to be a defining moment, I think, in my career, which was the euro area crisis, because, of course, that was a confluence of both politics and economics yeah. and finance. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that and how you're viewing things as far as the euro and what the landscape is looking like now, starting from there and going to kind of present day where we are. OK, so, you know, 2007, <clears throat> I find myself doing a PhD in political science and um I was really good at it, but I didn't enjoy it. And I think it was because of these long sort of lag times between research and uh, actual impact. So I remember I was writing a paper that took like 10 years to get published, you know, and yeah. it was something that happened like 10 years ago. So it was like a 20 year, you know, lag. Um, anyways, um, so I, I, I didn't quit academia, but I got a job at Stratfor. And it was funny because, you know, they had this opening for uh, a Europe analyst. Now, Stratford was very geopolitical, very security oriented place. Um, still a great place to get your political, you know, risk analysis from. And, uh, when I joined, being the Europe analyst was kind of like being the admiral of the Swiss Navy. You know, I mean, it was all about the Middle East. It was all about, you know, terrorists blowing stuff up. So like writing about the Lisbon Treaty wasn't that exciting or that relevant to anyone. And so when in 2010, when the Greek government basically changed hands because they had an election, the new prime minister came out and said, oops, you know, our budget deficit is not actually 4%. It's actually 10, later 12, you know, 15%. Um, sorry, <laughs> the previous government was kind of cooking the books. Uh, that causes this new area crisis uh, to, to begin uh, in, in earnest. And... Uh, you know, it really blew up throughout 2010 and then 2011. And so what I realized very quickly was that the math didn't really make sense. 
Um, so the Eurosceptic economists who were saying, look, this isn't um, a perfect currency union. Uh, it's not effective. Um, it has caused all these distortions. Uh, the bond market has basically ignored realities of Mediterranean Europe and has given them an interest rate they don't deserve. It, it felt to me like all these like old economists in ivory towers shaking their little fist at the uh, mathematical inelegance of the euro area. And to me, that was really silly because what held the place together was politics from the beginning. It was never meant to be elegant. It was meant to be messy and inefficient. And so getting the call right in 2011 is the same as getting the call right today, which is, are the geopolitical imperatives for integration still strong enough? And I would say yes. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about your framework because a lot of people don't consider politics when looking at even macro investing to an extent. A lot of people do put that in their framework, but when you look at most strategists and most analysts, they don't often consider that piece. So let's talk a little bit about your framework and how and why you think it's so important. Yeah, so we, uh, as investors, you know, we, we have to – uh, take into account a lot of different aspects, valuation, technical analysis, macroeconomic issues, bottom-up analysis if you're trying to pick individual stocks. Politics is definitely one of them. And for the longest time, I think that the way that most investors approach this issue is that they would talk to uh, people on the ground, you know, political consultants. As I said, I mean, I started in, in the political risk analysis industry and one of the first things I noted very early on was that uh, political intelligence, like insight from the ground, was kind of hit and miss. And, uh, you know, it became very aware. I became very aware that if you work for a private enterprise, as in not a public intelligence agency, so if you work in the private sector for a company or a hedge fund or a pension fund or a bank, it is highly unlikely that you're going to get a full picture from sources. You might get lucky and talk to the one person who, you know, figures things out correctly, but relying on on-the-ground sources is kind of as hit and miss as being analytical. So you might as well have a framework for understanding how politics operates. And the framework that really, um, you know, came out of the Euro area crisis, for me at least, was that policymakers, no matter how smart or dumb they were, you know, it was kind of irrelevant. They all figured out in the end what had to be done because the constraints pushed them in that, um, in that direction. Mm-hmm. By constraints, I mean material constraints. So, uh, things that exist in the, in the material world, things that we as investors, uh, luckily for us can actually assess and uh, we can calculate, we can measure. Things like macroeconomic constraints. You know, uh, Germany exports far more to the euro area than to China or the emerging markets. So Germany's stuck with the euro area. Uh, things like political constraints. Uh, you know, Alexis Tsipras of Syriza may have wanted to take Greece out of the euro area, but 65% of the Greeks wanted to stay for a number of reasons. And these constraints pushed policymakers uh, of different preference and different ideologies to the same direction, which was that uh, re- re- remaining in the euro area or, or preserving it was critical to them. And this this is because ultimately constraints um, are, you know, th- they cannot be changed by policymakers. It's very difficult 
Preferences are ultimately subject to constraints, and they're also optional. You can choose to act upon them, whereas constraints are neither optional nor subject to preferences. And so which one should we focus on? Definitely constraints as investors. Yeah, and you talk a little bit about the geopolitical landscape and kind of going along with that theme of how you're looking at things right now in present day here in 2020. How are you looking at the main themes right now and where investors should be focusing? Sure. So let me let me kind of uh, test drive the constraints framework right in present day. <clears throat> I would say that there's three themes that come out of this kind of a, a view of focusing on material reality that I do think are investment relevant. First, China and the U.S. are not angry at each other because Donald Trump is mean. Um, it's simply, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Um, if, if Joe Biden becomes the president of the United States, I can create a um, pretty reasonable view that he would actually deepen the enmity between U.S. and China. It may not happen, but I can give you a scenario where that were to happen. Why? Because China and the U.S. are in many ways constrained from um, from solving, resolving their differences, and they're constrained by geopolitical reality and by macroeconomics as well. Uh, so first of all, in the geopolitical reality, China is a rising power. Plenty has been written on this in political science theory and history. Uh, you know, Graham Allison, with his great book, uh, Destined for War. John Mersheimer talked about this in his second edition of uh, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. These are great, great, you know, kind of political theorists who have kind of explained why a rising challenger power and the status quo power are unlikely to be friends. It's just very difficult for them to cooperate. But there's an additional problem in this particular case in that China doesn't see itself as a challenger power. You know, like a, a Chinese theorist would on this podcast say probably, well, look, I mean, if we look at the last 150 years, sure, we were super poor, super incompetent. But here we are. We're now super competent and we are quite we're a challenger. But if you look over a, a period of 2000 years of history, we're not the challenger. You're the challenger. You know, we're the status quo power. Uh, the last hundred years where China was uh, beset by all sorts of internal problems are really an anomaly. And so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And, yeah, that's great. And how are you looking at this situation when you look at the currencies, both the, the dollar and the Chinese one? Well, I think that a lot from this perspective of, you know, who's a challenger and who's a status quo power, a lot is, uh, a lot of ink has been spilled <laughs> on trying to figure out whether the U.S. remains a reserve currency. Yeah. Um, and it does. Um, and, uh, you know, the connection between reserve currency and sort of power are, are obviously clear. You have to, uh, have some level of hegemony to provide the world with a reserve currency. Uh, but as, um, you know, economic historian Barry Eichengreen wrote in one of his papers over the past, I think, five years, he showed that, for example, the British pound remained the reserve currency out of some sort of a kind of a path dependency, like latency, you know, like people couldn't figure out what else to use. So even though the United Kingdom probably ceased to be uh, the most uh, relevant economy in the world, the largest economy in the world, sometimes in the 1870s, 80s, 
the pounds didn't really suffer until the 1950s. Uh, so I think that China definitely has uh, an intention to internationalize the renminbi. I think that over the next 10 years, for the most part, they, uh, they're likely to be successful on some level. Um, but it doesn't mean that the dollar just kind of disappears. Now, what is the preference of U.S. policymakers in terms of where the dollar is, in terms of the strength? It, first of all, it's tough for me to even know where the preference sits. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, Ryan, but like Trump has tweeted both ways. <laughs> you know, he said, mm-hmm. I want a strong dollar. I want a weak dollar. Right. Um, That's why I was kind of asking about this because you you get mixed messages even from the, uh, whether it's Mnuchin or Trump. Um, and even like you said, saying, talking out of both sides of their mouth. It's a great example, Ryan, a great example of how preferences are kind of irrelevant. Um, you know, President Trump pursued a policy of fiscal profligacy at the end of an economic cycle. So budget deficit of the United States has grown at the time when unemployment has come down. This was pre-COVID, of course. And uh, the U.S. did that uh, sort of uh, fiscal stimulus at the time when China and its policymakers really focused on supply side reforms. So you had this period of dollar strength between two, end of 2017 when we passed the tax cuts until, well, right up until this uh, COVID situation uh, that is really unique in sort of uh, in, in last several cycles. Usually at the end of the cycle, the dollar tends to weaken or flatten out. Why? Because at the end of the economic cycle, the rest of the world catches up to America and actually over over um, overtakes it in terms of growth, relative growth. And then the dollar kind of weakens and you have this nice emerging market outperformance at the end of the cycle. That didn't happen this time around because the U.S. pursued this fiscal uh, policy of, of, you know, profligacy. We, we cut corporate tax cuts. And throughout this period of dollar strength, it was interesting because President Trump both tried to talk down the dollar and engage in a trade war against China because the trade deficit was expanding. And it's, of course, it's expanding. You know, you're stimulating the economy at the end of a cycle. Unemployment rate is super low. You're adding more juice to the economy. You're strengthening the currency, making imports cheaper. I mean, of course, the trade deficit is going to uh, enlarge itself. And that was interesting because it showed how material reality is more important than what people, what policymakers say. And so trading based off of Twitter is probably a bad idea. (laughs) Right. And do you have any views on the Hong Kong dollar? So we haven't seen headlines on Hong Kong, especially after COVID broke out. Um, but just before that, we were seeing a lot of tension, obviously, between mainland China and Hong Kong. There was a couple prominent hedge funders out there talking about breaking the peg. Um, is this something that's going to take years to play out, but eventually will happen or an extended period? Or is this something where China is going to be able to keep that peg going? I think China can keep that peg going. I don't think that's a problem for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that peg will break. Um, when China decides that, you know, it doesn't really need Hong Kong anymore as some sort of a financial center. And I think we're probably approaching uh, that moment, but it's really difficult to time peg, um, peg, uh, you know, dollar peg collapses, if you will. And I personally would not try to time that because China does have a lot of firepower to maintain the peg. Uh, the other issue is that China has really dealt with this Hong Kong issue um, in a very patient manner. And that's not something you get from the Western press. 
There's this view in the West that they uh, are stressed by what's going on in Hong Kong, that they've cracked down on Hong Kong. And certainly it's not it's not like there hasn't been, you know, police protester, um, you know, violence. But if you compare it to protests in other countries, uh, you, you will notice that other countries have cracked down much, much m- even greater. So I, I think we have to step back and ask ourselves, you know, why has China been as patient with Hong Kong um, as it has? And uh, I think that that patience suggests that they're looking at this over a long term kind of horizon and they don't want to uh, further destabilize uh, the city. It is just not something that uh, would be in their interest. And I think allowing the peg to break would would definitely deepen the political and social tensions there. Yeah, and let's transition over to kind of the central theme that's been running throughout the podcast. So one of the reasons I started up was exploring this idea of inflation versus deflation and that being kind of the one thing that investors need to get right. So going back to 2008, which is partially why I kick off the podcast with that question, we saw this unprecedented amount of monetary stimulus pumped in from the Fed and also central banks around the world. And there was a lot of talk about how that would cause inflation. And there was very prominent people writing about this. There was even a letter penned. I think it was in the uh, Wall Street Journal, an open letter to Ben Bernanke by a few prominent um, investors, you know, very well regarded investors talking about some some concerns there. And now we're, we've come to the point to where we've seen inflation in asset prices and risk asset. And I use the term, quote unquote, inflation, where. Um, you know, maybe that's the wrong word, but, you know, when you take rates to zero, you have to move out on the risk curve to earn more more return and, um, and investors kind of bid up those assets. So you could call it uh, risk asset inflation or, or bidding up risk, risk assets, I guess. But now there's this kind of talk and narrative moving into even mainstream media about MMT, which is a little more nuanced, I understand, but really just fiscal money printing. So whether that be infrastructure spending or just sending checks to people, we can kind of go down the list and t- tackle each one independently. But let's let's start first going back to 2008. The balance sheet was around 800 billion. It grew organically with open market operations, obviously targeting the short-term rate. And then it, they took it all the way up to four and a half trillion. Now we, we've blown through that already in the past. <laughs> call it six months, but let's, let's start back in, in 08 and, and when they, you know, really uh, jacked up the balance sheet and kind of start from there and move slowly to present day. <laughs> oh man, I've, I've thought about this a lot, right? So uh, I love this question. Um, and it's, it's great because it shows the limits of economics. Honestly, I think if, um, if investors have to understand that macroeconomics is just in, insufficient to, to making calls like inflation. Because there's, there was this uh, cult of monetarism, you know, this idea that um, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, which is, I mean, it's, it's stupid. It, it makes absolutely no sense. Uh, if I give you $5 trillion, Ryan, but you're super depressed and you think the world is ending, you know, you may not spend any of it. You may burn it. <laughs> you know, you may hide it in your bunker, whatever the case is. So, um, yes, when, um, when things like money velocity and output are stable, 
uh, increasing um, the supply of money would uh, lead to a rise in prices. But the problem in 2009 is that output and money velocity were not stable. And I think the most important point is that while the Fed balance sheet expanded over a period of six years, I mean, it took time, by the way, to get to that four and a half trillion. It didn't happen yeah. overnight. Right, right. While, while that was happening, we had a 5.4% fiscal stimulus passed in Q1 of 2009. That was the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And it was passed, I mean, barely, you know, um, only three Republicans in the entire Congress, so combined House of Representatives and Senate, voted for it. And then in 2010, you had the midterm election uh, where the Tea Party uh, managed to, you know, kind of uh, create this wave of enthusiasm um, against Obama. And we proceeded to have the deepest period of austerity in American history. Let me let me repeat that because most people will be shocked when I say that. Mm-hmm. 2009 to 2016 was the longest and deepest period of contraction in terms of government's contribution to GDP. The G in the GDP equation was extremely low during this time. It was below 0%. It dis- detracted from growth, in other words. And so when people talk about secular stagnation, when they talk about deflation over the last decade – most economists will focus on things like balance sheet recession. Hey, absolutely. Richard Koo, props. Agreed. Things like technology. Okay. I'm a little bit more skeptical about that. Technology is always deflation, uh, deflationary. Why is it so special that we have Facebook? Like that really is deflationary. And so to me, what's always forgotten was the fact that politics turned, um, extremely, you know, contractionary in terms of austerity. Uh, now, there's been deepest periods of austerity, but only after world wars, like the Korean War and World War II. That was the only times we had these very sharp fiscal cliffs, but they lasted a short time, and they were a product of war spending coming down uh, very quickly. So we we self-induced this period of austerity, and you cannot ignore that when you talk about why there wasn't inflation. There wasn't inflation because private sector, especially households, were trying to repair their balance sheets. The government um, basically imposed this headwind to to growth, and that caused the money printing, you know, to inflate assets, but not really um, catch a bid in the real economy. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I think is very important to understand uh, of that period. Now, today, we have a completely different paradigm. We have a paradigm where for the first time ever, well, not for the first time ever, but like definitely for the first time in the last 10 years, let's put it that way. You have both fiscal and monetary policy uh, sti- being stimulative at the same time and being stimulative at a very high level. Uh, and so I think that's the main difference between 2009 and 2020. Right. And when you're looking now towards some of these programs that are coming out, a lot of people are getting $1,200. Some people I know got less, some people got zero. But when these checks are literally being mailed out, there was a prominent fixed income manager who talked about this uh, a year or two ago, talking about if the Fed really wanted to get inflation up or the government really wanted to get inflation up, they could just start sending checks out to people. Uh, you know, $10,000 checks, a $100,000 check. And then, you know, what would that do to inflation? Now, like you said, if there's 
the the other argument there is okay, maybe people just hoard that money if if people are really really scared, but they probably go out and spend uh, a lot of it. So. You know, we saw this back. I remember when George W. Bush, president, everyone got like a $200 check. It was small, but it was something. Um, and then we had cash for clunkers. We've seen some of these programs with Obama. That wasn't like physically, you know, giving people a check, but it was some type of credit for the car buying, right? So now we're actually seeing, you know, this, this first round of checks that, that went out. We're now we're looking at this next program, which passed the House and I believe is going to the Senate. I don't know what will happen there, but that's a $3 trillion program. What do you think that this type of stimulus will do towards inflation, especially the type of inflation that attracts, let's say, the price of eggs or the price of consumer goods and actually see those prices kind of rising and also wage level rising? You know, there's a lot of things going on, Ryan, at the same time. And so uh, I like to kind of uh, try to encapsulate all of them in some of a, some kind of a catch-all, you know, uh, PR-friendly term. So let me do that for you. <laughs> let, let me try to do that on this podcast. We are exiting the Washington consensus. Washington consensus uh, basically ruled uh, our macroeconomic context for the last 40 years. What is the Washington consensus? It is a combination of policies that really arose in the 1980s when uh, voters revolted against the demand-side, semi-socialist, demand-driven policies of the 70s and 60s. So you had the rise of these policymakers like Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and the Washington Consensus basically became a collection of policies um, that were designed to, you know, have stable, low inflation, bring the inflation that was very high in the 70s down, crush it, uh, and then create stable um, uh, stable monetary policy uh stable fiscal policy, privatization, deregulation, and very importantly, uh, a macroeconomic geopolitical environment that was helpful and useful for multinational corporations um, and, uh, and corporate interests. So that is the Washington consensus. So if you wanted, if you were like Indonesia or you were Thailand and you wanted IMF to come and help you, you had to basically accept the tenets of the Washington consensus. What are those? You know, prudent fiscal policy, uh, you had to have an independent central bank that would essentially anchor inflation around 2%, basically. Uh, you had to accept uh, laissez-faire politics such as privatization, deregulation, and you had to uh, open up to free trade. Now, I think we are in a world that's defined as Buenos Aires consensus. And I picked that city, obviously, for an obvious reason. I'm not saying America is going to become Argentina. But we are adopting uh, policies that are basically uh, designed to deliver higher nominal GDP outcomes. You know, writ large, period, easy. That's it. That's it. Forget stable inflation. Who cares? Maybe. Sure. Why not? If I can deliver higher nominal GDP outcomes. Uh, and that means that on a whole slew of policies, you're seeing a move away from the Washington consensus. So, for example, immigration. Even if Joe Biden becomes the president, I would I would guess that we are going to have a lower pace of increasing uh, inflation. So, like, you know, the, the change in immigration will slow in terms of accepting new immigrants. I think that's going to be the case. Maybe we uh, treat, you know, immigrants who are already in America in a nicer way when the uh, administration switch. But I think there'll be less immigration Two, um free trade. 
Do you think that Joe Biden will uh, move ag- move against this reshoring uh, narrative? Of course not. He's going to promote it as well. Uh, so you have on immigration, on free trade, again, a move towards a more inflationary outcomes because what you're doing is you're restricting supply of labor uh, on both fronts. And then uh, three, on fiscal and monetary policy, the sort of guardrails of austerity, the guardrails of prudence are really off. And so that's where you see this world where Democrats propose $3 trillion of additional spending on top of $2.5 trillion that's already been passed. So we're now somewhere around 20, 25% in terms of budget, uh, st- uh, budgeted stimulus compared to, again, 2009, we had 5.4. And I think that's, you know, you, I think you're going to see a slew of policies in that direction, almost no matter who is in charge. And I think, uh, investors should prepare for that outcome. I think that's definitely an inflationary outcome. Is it a hyperinflationary outcome? Uh, a hell no is the answer to that. Uh, I think anyone who thinks that there's going to be hyperinflation in America doesn't understand, I think, how inflation works. Uh, we're not going to get there, but is it a higher inflation? Yes, I think it is a higher inflation. It's not going to happen over the next six to 12 months. Uh, depends how deep this recession is, but I think what's going to be the biggest memory of 2020, the largest, most market relevant memory of 2020 will definitely be this switch from Washington consensus to the Buenos Aires consensus, and that will be inflationary. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As far as the, as I said, originally it was thought that the monetary stimulus would be more inflationary, but it didn't turn out to be that way, at least in kind of CPI and consumer goods type type inflation and also wage inflation. You know, I think wage inflation is extremely important to also talk about because when you when you think about the difference between Washington consensus and the Buenos Aires consensus, it's not just mechanical policies that I'm saying are different. I'm also saying that ideology and politics will be markedly, markedly different. So over the last 40 years, it was really difficult to ask for uh, higher wages. You know, even unions in Europe, like in Germany, famous example, unions in Germany were told basically by management, hey, listen, if we give you higher wages, we might have to move to Czech Republic, you know, like we might have to move to Slovakia. And so what the unions did is they they, they self-repressed their wages and said, okay, fine, just give me more vacation time or give me a better education or free movie tickets or something. So you've seen over the last 40 years, because of globalization, because of immigration, because of a lot of long-term trends, um, wage earners were basically cowed into accepting a world where asking for a wage increase was like ludicrous. I think that that's changing, you know, and we already saw, uh, we already saw hints of that change last year where you had, uh, teacher unions in some red states and some Republican states basically, um, go on strike to demand higher wages and they were supported by the public. The COVID situation has only increased this, uh, th- this move towards, you know, demanding of higher wages by, uh, by various, you know, delivery people, by people working on the ground, having to deal with COVID. Um, and they're using COVID situation as a reason to uh, ask for higher wages. Now, policymakers are helping them by creating this unemployment insurance uh, that in most states of the United States is now delivering higher unemployment uh, insurance. It's basically higher than the average wage. So imagine a situation where that unemployment insurance is extended uh, until the end of this year, 
maybe reduced next year, but probably extended again. That's a world where Uber has to attract someone off the unemployment rolls with higher wages. And I think that link between wages and inflation is quite often, you know, misunderstood. It's not studied sufficiently, I think. Uh, I think it's definitely there. Uh, but wages themselves are not just going to go up because unemployment is low. There has to be a sort of a political and ideological shift that encourages wage earners to revolt against the owners of the means of production. And I'm using Marxist terms on purpose because this is what it's about, right? This is going to be old school, 20th century Marxist fight. And I think we're going to see that uh, pendulum of politics is, is swinging back towards labor and you will start seeing higher wages. Uh, so that's a very important piece of the puzzle, Ryan. And I think you, you brought it up by basically asking what about, you know, wage inflation? I think it's critical because inflation in prices by itself is deflationary if you don't have the wage price spiral. If wages don't rise to meet higher prices, then price increases are deflationary because, you know, consumers can't keep up. Do you think that the stock buybacks are, should be included in that conversation or is that a completely different issue? So, no, absolutely. Companies, you know, you're taking advantage of super low rates to kind of lever up and then buy back their own stock. Right. Some would say maybe instead of paying more bonuses and or paying out higher wages, but then the other side of that argument, some people say, well, the buybacks are, it's the same thing as a dividend basically. So where do you come down on that? No, I've, uh, you know, I've been thinking about uh, the next recession <clears throat> for the last decade, obviously, as everyone has. Um, but from my sort of political perspective, you know, I've been trying to figure out what will be the next uh, big scandal. And um, I've been talking to my former colleagues at BCA Research. So I worked at BCA Research in Montreal for eight years, um, had a great time. Lots of lots of great uh, exchanges I've had. And, and one of them was I, I went up to the U.S. equity guys and I said, hey, hey, I think stock buybacks are going to be made illegal. And you know, I was basically laughed out of the room, like, come on, dude, this has nothing to do with politics. Get out of here. You know, do you even understand how capital structure works and all this stuff? And I was like, well, no, but, you know, there's all this debt in the corporate world, but you guys are telling me it's a capex light uh, recovery. So what is the debt being used for? Well, stock buybacks. I'm like, okay. So when the next recession comes and these corporates have to fire people because they're bankrupt, Want those fired people turn around and say, well, why are we being fired? Oh, well, you know, your company has a lot of debt. Okay. Well, why does it have a lot of debt? Did it build factories? Did it invest in production? Did it invest in new workers? Oh, no, no. Executives, you know, like, uh, sold, uh, you know, they bought more stocks and their stock went up and they bought a corporate jet. Now, obviously it's not like that. Obviously, you know, there is a reason that you do want to do, uh, stock buybacks. It's, it's rational. There's like a good reason to do it, but you know, I don't care that there's a good reason. Because after a recession, political narratives emerge. And so you actually saw, even before the COVID situation, you saw Chuck Schumer, senator from New York, uh, you know, for the long time, he was considered Wall Street senator. And, you know, he's, he turned on stock buybacks, um, before this recession. And so my, my view is that you're right. It's interesting that you switched from kind of wage growth to stock buybacks. So what's the link between the two? Well, it's this pendulum swing to the left, which is happening in the U.S., which will happen. Uh, and we are definitely going to see limits on stock buybacks going forward. 
Yeah, and going back to the debt monetization piece, so talking about the quantitative easing as we touched on and then this move towards more fiscal stimulus, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, we talked about the dollar and, and China, so tying some of those things together with this question is the kind of the issue of the debt monetization. So there's some out there who argue that, the Treasury and the Fed have kind of merged into this one institution where the debt gets sold and it's supposed to, quote unquote, kind of be sold to the public and to investors. But the primary dealers that snatch it up, they just are thinking they're just going to kind of flip it and sell it back to the Fed who's in there buying. Um, and so that brings up a question of well, what do, if that's true, if it really if they are kind of really monetizing debt. Uh, maybe even indirectly, but, you know, the balance sheet hasn't rolled off. As we talked about, it just keeps going up. So it, if they don't roll it off and then maybe they forgive the debt or maybe they just maybe they don't, but they just they just keep holding it. And obviously there's various maturities all the way from bills to uh, to the long bonds and they're holding everything and MBS and now <laughs> junk bond ETFs. But, you know, what implications does that have for the dollar? And then kind of as a geopolitical, uh, landscape, how, you know, what, what will that do to, to the confidence and how does that play out? Yeah, uh, yeah, great question. I think in the short term, it's going to support the dollar, ironically, uh, because it's all about growth, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. is uh, clearly stimulating more than the rest of the world. Um, that said, you know, we have to acknowledge that the rest of the world is also reacting in sort of this, uh, Buenos Aires consensus matter. We do have uh, significantly higher fiscal stimulus across the board. So we are currently somewhere around 8% of global GDP in terms of uh, fiscal stimulus. And I'm talking about purely fiscal, uh, does not include things like um, loan guarantees. So we're at 8% of global. In 2009, uh, the result, uh, between 2008-2010, it was about 2.5%. So it's significantly higher. The U.S. is, however, leading the charge. Uh, Europe is still far behind, even with this new $500 billion, um, you know, effort slash facility. Sorry, $500 billion euro. So with the U.S. stimulating as much as it is, uh, it's likely that in terms of growth outcomes, the U.S. will lead for the next 6 to 12 months. And I think that it's difficult for me to see the dollar depreciate significantly in a situation where the, uh, the U.S. is outperforming the rest of the world. Uh, dollar is a, a counter-cyclical currency, um, and it really requires uh, growth differentials between the U.S. and the rest of the world to change uh, for it to uh, fall. Now, there could be some safe haven uh, outflows. And what I mean is that as the COVID-19 situation eases, and I'm a, a maniacal bull on COVID-19, we can talk about that later, but as it eases, as the second wave thesis um, proves to be largely a red herring, I do think that the dollar could weaken uh, because some of the safe haven support for the dollar uh, weakens as well. Uh, I just don't see it weakening meaningfully over the next six months just because the U.S. will continue to outperform given how much more stimulus it has pumped through. Now, that said, over the longer term, the, the world you're de- um, describing is one where the central bank has to continue to buy these purchases. And by the way, it's a world where U.S. will probably have to uh, maintain a pace of fiscal spending 
uh, that's very high. Because what happens if you spend 30% of your GDP in 2020, but then 15% of the GDP next year? You're going to have a significant fiscal cliff. The difference between those two um, is significant. So we're not going to stop spending this amount of money next year, uh, especially if, for example, Democrats win all three chambers, uh, you know, sorry, all three sort of branches like the House, Senate and the White House. I think that you will see a relatively high level of fiscal spending for some time to ensure that the fiscal cliff doesn't induce uh, a sharp recession, like, for example, in 1945 or after the Korean War. And so that will mean that um, the, the U.S. balance sheet is going to be expanding. Um, and at some point, uh, there will be pressure on the U.S. 10-year bond yields uh, because global growth will renormalize and investors will demand just a higher rate of return to, to buy a treasury, right? Because right. they're able to buy other things. At that point, yeah. I think, yeah, and sorry, just to kind of wrap it up. I mean, at that point, I think you get yield curve control. And that's when the dollar will start depreciating uh, quite significantly. So that's exactly where I was going to go next is that's a theme on the podcast too is talking about rates. And when you look at the long end of the curve, there's a debate of where, how long and how much the Fed can, can pin rates down. And they talk about the yield curve control. And I know that there's pretty much almost unlimited capacity for them to, to go in and buy and, um, and kind of do that targeting and, and buy on the long, long end. You know, when we saw rates spike up, um, in the repo market, I think it was eight to 10% roughly on that overnight rate. Uh, you know, they came in and started doing facilities to be able to bring that ample liquidity in. So it was really on the 30 day bills and the very short end of the curve. But when you look at the long end, as you said, if we get some inflationary pressures and if we start seeing that long end, you know, the other side of the coin and that where other people would say, um, the Fed, you know, may actually lose control of that long end and they're, they're not going to be able to keep rates down. Now, when we had Volcker raise rates and I think it was 1979 and he brought out the hammer and you know, to fight off inflation, the debt to U.S. debt to GDP was much lower than it is today. So there's that concern that the Fed can't, um, that they have to keep the rates pinned down and then they won't be able to raise rates to, to combat inflation that uh, that might show up. But they don't want to combat. Yeah, they don't. Ryan, look, they don't want to combat inflation. Okay. Volcker, you know, Volcker is like a mythical figure in, in finance, right? He's like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. And I'm probably going to like anger everyone with a PhD in economics who's listening to this. So if you have a PhD in economics, you're listening to this, you're an economist, you consider yourself an economist, probably want to stop listening. Volcker is a product of the time. Okay. Volcker without uh, the political context cannot exist. And what I mean by that is that by 1979, it was obvious to everyone that we had stagflation. It was obvious to everyone that we were in a low growth, high inflationary environment that was like bad. Even the, you know, the people on the streets knew that it was bad. So there was political support for basically uh, a central bank induced recession. There is zero support for that now. If Jay Powell or his successor were to pull a Volcker in the next five years with income inequality where it is, with, uh, you know, the regular people of this country pretty angry, I mean, there would be a guillotines would be pulled out. 
uh, in the U.S. So that's really critical to understand because Volcker is seen as this kind of genius who like did what was necessary. And, but he did it because there was basically political capital stored because the seventies proved the folly of loose monetary policy, fiscal profligacy, and generally demand side policies. Like the public had turned. That's why we had this huge political revolution that brought us laissez-faire capitalism and the Washington consensus. Now the pendulum is the other way. So no, I think when inflation starts rearing its head and if it's between two and a four and maybe even 5%, first of all, stocks are going to go through the roof. Stocks love two to 4% inflation. Uh, I don't think that enough investors are in, in the sort of Buenos Aires consensus camp. I don't think enough investors are out there thinking that this is permanent. I, I, you know, when you speak to people, Ryan, a lot of people out there still think we're in a deflationary environment. So when inflation does come back to 2 to 4%, people are not going to freak out. In fact, stocks are probably going to do great. And I think the policymakers are going to be quite fine with that because they're going to start thinking, well, yeah, debt to GDP is 110%. Well, maybe we need 5% inflation for the next couple of years. That'd be a good, that'd be good news. It can inflate the way to debt. Right. Well, a couple of points there. So there's been some reports that and kind of commentaries out there that when the 10 year hit around three and a quarter, everything started breaking. The stock market started falling and then, you know, the Fed had to come in and do more easing. For sure. And there's this kind of view out there that, you know, if rates normalize and that the 10 year goes to, let's say, as you mentioned, three, four or five percent, then um, that's even too high to where to where the Fed wants it. And oh, for sure. And, and so then there's the, the other side of the coin, as you mentioned, is that at what point are investors going to demand a higher yield? So, you know, the 30 year bond or or they just did a new issuance of the 20 year bond. I know I saw Jim Bianco tweeted out um, for the first time in many years. So at what point? It used to be called kind of the, the bond vigilantes or keeping things in check. At what point are investors going to demand more? But then will the Fed just come in and, and, and just do a huge amount of buying on the long end and to try to uh, force yields down? Who will win out? Which, you know, which camp will win out there? Uh, 100% the Fed will win out. Like 100%. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, no, there's no doubt in my mind. The Fed will win out and uh, it will institute yield curve control. Japan has basically done it. We did it uh, after World War II. Uh, the Fed is just going to anchor that long end uh, to whatever it is that it thinks is, you know, appropriate, uh, which will probably be too low. Um, I mean, you know, it's all part and parcel of the same trajectory that we have today, which is that, um, you know, inflation is not just something anybody worries about. And in many ways, that's a correct way to think about it. If we do have a lot of debt incurred because of this gargantuan fiscal stimulus, it does make sense to inflate it away. Now, I don't want people out there to think that I somehow think that this is prudent. I mean, first of all, I don't have policy recommendations. You know, I don't do that. I just focus on kind of the future and what will happen. And I think what will happen is that we're going to get comfortable at 2 and two to 4% inflation, maybe 5 Remember, even before this crisis, even before COVID, major central banks were already uh, holding these internal, you know, think kind of conferences about um, adjusting their monetary policy uh, and adjusting their inflation targeting. So there were discussions already about increasing uh, the target from 2 to 4%. So we're going to have that 2 to 4% inflation. The, the Fed is going to come out anchored to tenure. 
The problem, though, is that inflation is not a thermometer. In other words, you can't just set, you know, uh, 4% inflation on your thermometer and be happy with it and just have run higher inflation. It's likely that if inflation does go to 4 to 5%, it is highly likely that wage demands from the population will increase and force um, all sorts of businesses either through, you know, public shaming or through laws, uh, minimum wage laws, uh, you will see wages rise and then that will create the wage price spiral which will ensure that inflation does get out of hand. And then we will hit 5 to 10% at some point, And then the cycle will repeat itself where we will learn the folly of demand drive, demand side policies. And sometimes in late 2020 or early 2030, you know, we'll have another Paul Volcker emerge to save us, another hero. Uh, but it's not that that person it's, uh, themselves is smart or knows what they're doing. It's that the political zeitgeist will shift back and away from, um, you know, demand side policies. And you mentioned that being bullish on equities, maybe not that five to 10% no, number. In the short term. Up in the, yeah, in the shorter term. Let's talk about that for a brief moment. Is that a case of yields being so low that when you look at the yield on the 10 year, you know, you get a higher dividend in the S&P, let's say. Um, so is that a kind of a relative trade or does that have to do with other more like global macro issues uh, or maybe a mix of both? No, it's just that two to four percent price inflation is something that most corporates can pass on to their, uh, their consumers without worrying about wage pressures. And so when you look at long term kind of analyses of how different uh, sectors perform, the two to four percent is like a sweet spot. Um, and there's been a lot of research uh, published on that by people who know what they're talking about, as opposed to me. You know, I'm, I'm not really uh, an economist, so uh, that's out of my purview. But I think it's pretty, pretty solid research. Two to four percent is cool. Everything is happy. So at the beginning stages of a Buenos Aires consensus, everyone's happy. That's why it's awesome. That's why it's, you know, it's it's populism. You know, who doesn't enjoy the sweet nectar of socialism and demand side policies? Everybody does. Everybody wins except for the long term. And that's why we have an independent central bank. We have an independent central bank because the appeal of these kind of populist policies is so strong that you need to basically grab a bunch of academics, throw them in an ivory tower and say, you know, push against our populist tendencies. Well, we've broken that. I think that's been broken for the last several years. And I think that, um, you know, in the short term, everybody will cheer this new paradigm. It's like, oh, my God, you know, COVID-19. Wow, we were worried for nothing. Look, demand has recovered. Everything is cool. Um, well, maybe higher inflation is not so bad. Um, and then, of course, if inflation does uh, stay persistently high or if it starts moving in that 5 to 10 percent range, we will have the type of equity performance we did in the 1970s. So if you looked at the inflation-adjusted S&P 500, and its performance between 1971 and 1982, uh, I mean, you know, like you, you lost like six out of every $10 that you invested in, in the S&P 500 during this time. And bond market didn't really do much uh, better for you uh, either uh, in the 70s. Uh, so that's why I do think if you were making an investment decision for the long term and you had to make that decision today, like you had to allocate to your portfolio right now, and then you couldn't touch it until 2030. Um, you know, I hate to sound like a gold bug because I've been making fun of them for the past 10 years. Uh, 
you know, uh, even though I'm the geopolitical guy and like, no, gold, forget it. Um, but I would definitely not uh, invest in U.S. equities or U.S. bonds for that matter. I think both over the next, again, if you were making an investment decision, you had to make it right now, today. I think you would have to allocate to gold and to uh, assets outside of the U.S. Because I think that over the next decade, emerging markets are likely to outperform U.S. equities. Um yeah, when you look at all the seven-year forecasts from uh, GMO is the one I always look at, but maybe research affiliates, AQR, and others, they, you know, all of them show emerging markets with the highest expected return going forward, and obviously the, those countries with the most growth upside. And a lot of that has to do with demographics. Um, but you just touched on one piece there as far as when you look at the S&P 500, we're going to link uh, a few of your, some of your content here in the show notes, but the one interview did, did with Mike Green um, and just going to his kind of thesis about fund flows and indexing, how the price discovery has been kind of broken and how that affects markets. So touching on that piece, as you mentioned, there's a thesis out there that gold, you know, maybe real estate, real assets, but also equities that have pricing power, maybe equities that pay a dividend that quote unquote pay you to hold them are, are a great way to, let's say, keep up with inflation if it does show up even more so in the next 10 years, along with something like gold, as opposed to, let's just say, the S&P index or a product like that. Do you think there's differentiation there? Or you look at yeah, like uh, the return to Nifty 50s, basically Nifty 50. You know, like these uh, dividend yielding stocks. Uh, totally, uh, I do think that's that does make sense. Um, also, uh, I, I just want to make something clear. You know, we're now in a conversation about the next decade, and it is very relevant uh, for many institutions that here at Clock Tower Group we have a great partnership with. So many, you know, global pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. They really care about the next decade. At the same time, what we focus on is our macro hedge fund community, and they have a much shorter time horizon. So over the shorter time horizon, I think it's critical to understand that um, I'm not, you know, really bearish on S&P 500. As I said earlier, I think the U.S. is likely to outperform at least over the next six months, uh, both because of the fiscal uh, stimulus, because of monetary policy, um, also because I think the COVID-19 situation gets resolved. Uh, I think uh, much faster than people think. So over the next six to 12 months, maybe even be beyond that, uh, you know, you kind of have to take it quarter by quarter uh, in terms of what's happening around the world. Um, the U.S. will outperform. Some of the things. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say some of the things that could derail that outperformance uh, could be, let's say, a meaningful Chinese stimulus. Uh, now, we have a great onshore um, manager network, so we talk to a lot of uh, hedge fund managers in China. Uh, they tell us not to expect a significant kind of fiscal plan from China. China and the U.S. have, have um, switched their roles from 2009. So in 2009, the U.S. probably understimulated, China overstimulated. Today, the roles are reversed, in large part because policymakers learned different lessons from 2009, and, and Xi Jinping is ultimately – um, still kind of uh, thinks himself as a reformer. So he, he, he and his uh, administration believes that they made a mistake by stimulating as much as they have over the last decade. Uh, and because of that, you know, I would favor, I guess, U.S. equities for another six to 12 months, but that could be wrong. Uh, Xi Jinping might just say, like, look, 
we need to meet our growth targets, and then they surprise us. And, and that decision, by the way, will be taken uh, soon. The NPC is going to be held May 22, 23rd, so in a couple of days. Uh, I don't know when you post this podcast, but, you know, there could be sort of a surprise from the Chinese side. Uh, in the long term, though, however, I think that the combination of uh, likely higher inflation regime, uh, a move away from laissez-faire capitalism in the U.S. towards something akin to dirigism, and a uh, likely underperformance of the dollar does make a strong uh, case for being in emerging markets. And, you know, I've been bearish on gold and emerging markets since I entered finance. So emerging markets have been in a bear market between 2011 and basically to today. And so, um, you know, it's not like I'm always bullish on emerging markets. It's just that they have, for the most part, addressed their uh, foreign currency debt levels. So sovereigns have reduced those debt levels. Uh, there's very few countries that have, you know, twin deficits in emerging markets. Current account deficits have, for the more, most part, been closed. It's unlikely that we will see balance of payment crises over the next decade. And many policymakers in emerging markets have been humbled by the last decade. So some countries have embarked on the path of structural reform. And so I think that they, they come better prepared for the next decade. So it's not just a demographic story. I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a story of countries that have been humbled by a decade of underperformance. Interesting. Yeah, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Now, moving to the last topic here of just going to present day, and you touched on it a second ago, but your outlook here for COVID-19, there's a lot of commentary out there. It's obviously can be really polarizing. Like we need to open everything right now all the way to, you know, we need to be uh, shut down and, and in quarantine for another all the way into 2021 and leaving that open-ended and whenever that might be. What's your slant here and, and, and how are you thinking about things? Yeah, so <clears throat> I'm not going to talk about vaccine or a cure. I know there's been some like, positive news on that front, but, you know, I'm just going to leave that as an exogenous uh, variable. Uh, so if you go to the University of Washington Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, uh, they have uh, basically a model that suggests when states can begin to ease their social distancing policies. Now, University of Washington uh, Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation is not some sort of a alt-right uh, conspiracy site, <laughs> you know. They are, quote-unquote, scientists. Um, and I mean, their map of the United States, which I'm looking at right now is, is fairly, um, you know, fairly optimistic. I mean, they basically argue that states, U.S. states representing 85% of GDP can begin to ease social distancing by June 1st. This is based on their rate of infection and, you know, whether or not they've had a declining rate of infection for an X amount of days. So if you look at, for example, a state like California, according to, um, you know, University of Washington, May 18th is when California can begin to ease social distancing without any, you know, sort of negative repercussions. Now, are there states that are doing, you know, stupid things by kind of run, running ahead of their date? Yes. Georgia will be interesting to monitor because according to University of Washington, they really shouldn't have done anything until June 8th or maybe even later. But for the most part, uh, what we what we're seeing in the U.S. is that the rate of infections is coming down. The daily new cases are uh, are starting to slowly come down, not as fast as what happened in Europe, 
uh, but it is starting to come down. And, and that's a very positive outcome. The second thing that's happening is that there are countries in the world that never really adopted very draconian social distancing. So, for example, Sweden. Um, Sweden is a great example to study. According to um, the, the COVID-19 response stringency index, which quantifies uh, a set of policies, Sweden is at basically around 58 on an index of 0 to 100. And that's important to understand because there's this narrative out there that Sweden is not socially distancing. It is. It is. It's just doing it at a lower level than the U.S. U.S. on this um, index is 70. If the U.S. goes from 70 to the Swedish level, what's going to happen? Well, probably nothing. Nothing's going to happen. Because if you study the data from Sweden, um, in terms of their daily increase of cases, uh, their first wave never really ended. It just is. But it's under control. And in terms of ICU patients, uh, those patients are uh, coming down, which is which is positive. So my view here is that we will begin to ease social distancing. Uh, the current levels of social distancing in most U.S. states are unsustainable. Um, but it will be done, you know, moderately. People's behavior has changed. And that's why the second wave, uh, our, you know, narrative is, is I think, I think it's ludicrous. Um, will there be a second wave? Sure. Maybe. Who knows? But it cannot be bigger than the first wave. And the reason for that is that we're not going back to status quo ante. No one's going to go to, you know, South Beach and, and, you know, party. Uh, that's not going to happen. Well, we're going to go back. Sorry, maybe you are. Maybe you are evil. <laughs> but no, well, the thing is, we, we, we hope not. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, like we can hope or not. But one thing that all the models consistently got wrong, and they all excuse themselves for this, is that they consistently misunderstood uh, the human behavior shift. And so a lot of the initial modeling that said that there would be millions of people dead in the U.S., no matter what we did. So, for example, the Imperial College of London told us that even if we all did everything that they recommended, there would still be 1.1 million people dead in America. Okay, why? Well, because they uh, didn't model correctly uh, so uh, behavior. And they, they basically said they thought, they assumed that far less people would abide by social distancing. And I think that once social distancing policies are eased, you will si- still see people not shake hands. Um, you will still see people not, you know, break kind of the six feet uh, thing. Uh, they might go to a restaurant. They might go to a coffee shop. But I think we have permanently changed behavior. And that's not only going to mean that the second wave is going to be much lower. It also means that our influenza, uh, annual influenza epidemic, which we have every year in this country, uh, is likely going to also be uh, a little bit milder, which is obviously good for our healthcare system. Uh, so yes, that's, I think this is critical. You know, I'm not an epidemiologist and I know everyone's not an amateur epidemiologist and I stay off of Twitter because I completely agree with you, Ryan. There's so much, you know, crap about this. But as Jay Powell said, look, you cannot have a view on the markets if you don't have a view on this. And my, my view on this from day one has been, uh, social, f- like behavior and human fear is not a linear concept. It's dynamic. And we will both desensitize and we will accept some of the risks, um, especially when the economic pain starts to rise. Because as economic pain rises, the unit cost of fear will increase for a large proportion of the population. Um, these are people who are not savers. And the problem I have with talking to a lot of people in the investment community is that we're all savers. 
for the most part, everyone you talk to in, in finance is well off or okay or perfectly fine socially isolating. But if you talk to people who don't have savings, who are paycheck to paycheck, which is a vast majority of Americans, you know, the unit cost of fear for them is going to rise and force them to desensitize. And so you have this situation we had here in L.A. You remember last week, for example, where I think the county health commissioner came out after Fauci's testimony and said, boom, three more months of lockdown in Los Angeles. I mean, you know, uh, Mayor Garcetti came out within minutes of that statement and said, no, she was just kidding. You know, like it's guys, guys, it's okay. You know, uh, you know, we're, we're good. It's not a total lockdown. I mean, he went on CNN right afterwards and contradicted it. Why? Because I think policymakers are starting to realize that they're constrained and they're constrained by the fact that a large, large quantity of voters are not savers, are not cool working from home are not cool recording podcasts from home and having fun. They need the economy to restart. And so they understand that, you know, there's limits to kind of the social distancing. Um, but yeah, that's why I'm hopeful. And that's even without a vaccine. In fact, I could even see a vaccine being negative for the economy uh, um, in a sort of a dire scenario. You know, like what happens if we find out tomorrow that we have a 100% effective vaccine and that it will be uh, ready in December? Well, in that case... Maybe it does make sense to just stay at home until December. You know, if you have certainty that there will be a vaccine, uh, then maybe, you know, uh, even the low mortality rate of COVID may be too high. Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Marco, it was great having you. Um, we're going to link a few of your other appearances from Real Vision and uh, a few other things in the show notes here so people can easily find it. But uh, why don't you give a quick shout out and tell people where they can uh, find you and see more of your work? Well, uh, I work at Clock Tower Group uh, here in Santa Monica. And uh, so I don't really publish any research, uh, but anyone who wants to kind of reconnect uh, with me from my days on the sell side uh, can just email me uh, at Marco, M-A-R-K-O, at clocktowergroup.com. So it's a real pleasure, Ryan. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Marco. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod. Or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.